1: at that moment in time, can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again.
2: Well, there you go. All roads lead to Donald Trump, but will the former president be charged with a crime? That is the question. Good morning, everyone. See Caitlin here, but you don't see Poppy Harlow. She's off. She's off. Lucky her. right <laughs> well, here Caitlin and I had a late flight back to New York City. We're here. We're in D.C. yesterday because of the January 6th panel delivering blistering speeches during its final public meeting. We're gonna break down the key takeaways and what happens next for the former president.
3: Also, the border is in limbo this morning after Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily froze a Trump era border restriction in place just hours before it was set to expire. Now we're waiting for the next move from the White House.
4: The soldiers told us we need to follow in their footsteps exactly. And we need to be very careful where we step. This whole island is littered with landmines. So you
2: recognize him. That is CNN's Will Ripley. Will is the first journalist to visit the infamous Snake Island where Ukrainians told Russians, go F yourself what our cameras captured. We're going to show you that. We're live in Odessa with this exclusive for you. But we're going to begin with January 6th. The committee dropping the mic on its last public hearing and putting the ball in the DOGA's court. Now, the congressional panel making history by recommending criminal charges against former president Donald Trump. They call it a roadmap to justice for the Capitol insurrection. The question now is, will the special counsel, Jack Smith, follow it, toss it, or take another route? The answer could have broad implications for the 2024 presidential race. Let's begin now. CNN's senior legal affairs correspondent is Paula Reid, and she joins us now from Washington. Paula, hello to you. You have new reporting on the special counsel. What can you tell us?
5: Well, good morning, Don. As you know, Special Counsel Jack Smith, he's been working remotely from Europe since he was appointed to oversee multiple investigations related to former President Trump. And a source familiar with his plans tells CNN that the Special Counsel will be back in the U.S. by early January. And he'll be facing a pile of criminal referrals just announced by the January 6th committee. And as you saw yesterday in their final hearing, they were really Focus squarely on why they believe Smith should hold the former president criminally responsible for what happened on January 6th.
6: We are prepared to share our found findings with you.
5: In a historic well, hearing, lawmakers on the January 6th committee laid out why they believe the Justice Department should pursue at least four criminal charges against former President Trump. President Trump
7: lit the flame. He poured gasoline on the fire and sat by in the White House dining room for hours watching the fire burn. And today, he still continues to, flan, to fan those flames.
5: Lawmakers concluded there is evidence of obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, false statements to the federal government, and inciting or assisting an insurrection.
8: The president's actions could certainly trigger other criminal violations,
5: The committee also released a summary of its final report Monday describing in extensive detail how Trump tried to pressure anyone who wasn't willing to help him overturn his election defeat while knowing that many of his claims were not true. The committee played previously unseen clips from interviews with top White House aides like Hope Hicks, who shared what happened when she challenged Trump on his election lies.
9: I was becoming increasingly concerned that we were damaging um we were damaging his legacy he said something along the lines of nobody will care about my legacy if i lose um so that won't matter Um, the only thing that matters is is winning the committee
5: vice chairwoman believes these legal recommendations should also have political
1: consequences no man Who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. You
10: know the
5: old way. In addition to Trump, lawmakers recommended his election attorney, John Eastman, on two counts, impeding an official proceeding and conspiring to defraud the United States. He was the author of a two-page memo outlining what he said was a plan for then-Vice President Mike Pence to block the certification of the presidential electoral count.
11: John Eastman admitted in advance of the 2020 election that Mike Pence could not lawfully refuse to count official electoral votes. But he nevertheless devised a meritless proposal.
5: In a statement, Eastman's lawyer dismissed the referral as the product of an absurdly partisan process. The committee also made ethics referrals against four GOP lawmakers who refused to comply with subpoenas for this investigation.
8: We are now referring four members of Congress for appropriate sanction by the House Ethics Committee for failure to comply with lawful subpoenas.
5: Trump's attorneys believe prosecutors would face an uphill battle in proving that he did not believe the election was stolen. But yesterday, we saw lawmakers address that potential defense head on by playing all those clips of top White House advisors telling Trump otherwise. The lawmakers, they've made their case in the court of public opinion, and now it's up to the Justice Department whether it wants to bring this to a criminal court. Don.
2: Everybody's waiting to see what will happen next. Thank you, Paul Arita. Appreciate it.
3: And as Paul was noting there, one of the most serious charges that the panel, the committee recommended for Trump is insurrection. It might also, though, be the most difficult to prove. The law itself says anyone who incites, sets on foot, assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof or aids in one could face up to 10 years in prison and, quote, shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. But until now, in the Justice Department's 900-some criminal cases against U.S. Capitol rioters, not a single person has been brought up on insurrection charges. Instead, prosecutors have relied on laws related to violence, obstruction, and a few cases that you've seen seditious conspiracy. But with the committee set to release its full report in the coming days, that could include tens of thousands of pages of transcripts, potentially hours of footage from the interviews with thousands of witnesses, It will obviously be up to Attorney General Merrick Garland to decide what's next. Joining us now to break down everything you saw yesterday is former Assistant Special Watergate Prosecutor Nick Ackerman and CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller. Thank you both for being here. Nick, I I think you obviously have the historical perspective here, and I wonder what you thought of of the final public hearing yesterday.
12: I I thought it was an excellent summation of the evidence that they've come up with over the last year. Um, They really dug into this deeply. They put together each of these schemes all with the same object in the end, which was to stop the lawful transfer of power. Uh, They showed through video clips, they showed through other testimony, uh, basically proof that Donald Trump was behind each and every one of those schemes. Um, This was not something that we saw with the Senate Select Committee in Watergate. I mean, That was really an investigation that started right from the get-go, they didn't really know what was there until they got testimony from witnesses. It was an investigation that unfolded in front of the public. But here, uh, you had a committee that was unified in terms of what it was doing. There were not any obstructionists on this committee. They put it together very succinctly. They put it together in an organized way. And I think the public really knows what the proof is and what they have found over the course of time.
3: What about the Justice Department?
12: Well, I think the Justice Department, we don't really know because all of that is under the umbrella of grand jury secrecy. I think it's pretty clear, though, that the Justice Department has a lot of this evidence. I mean, they had it before. And even the committee in its summary report acknowledges as much that a lot of this the Justice Department has learned either from them or through other sources. And don't forget, the committee didn't uncover everything. I mean, there's some big gaping holes that they did not answer. One, you know, what was the connection between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the White House? I mean, we have some interesting tidbits that came up about Roger Stone, who was president at the time, Donald Trump's chief political um, ally. Uh, We have some interesting stuff about uh, General Flynn, the former Um, advisor to Donald Trump, uh, who was present uh, with the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. But we don't know what that connection is. The committee didn't dig into that. They didn't dig into what was going on at the War Room, at the Willard Hotel, uh, in terms of what were all those miscreants and no-goodniks doing there. So
2: then what are they waiting for? So then that just won't be part of... Officially, of, of, if, if he is charged, none of that that oh, you're Oh, of saying? course
12: it could be, it absolutely, could be. Okay. because we don't know what the department knows. We also, they've got uh, Pat Cipollone's testimony now. I mean, the committee was going up against the wall of executive privilege, but they've broken that wall, and so that's going to be very significant
2: testimony. So you're saying that the American people, and we should not just rely on the information from yesterday on the recommendation, there are other things that the president, that the DOJ will look at. Other than what the committee may have, said. absolutely. Okay. Well, John, let's look at this: obstruction of an official proceeding, defrauding the U.S., um, uni- the United States, making false statements, assisting or aiding in insurrection. Now, I am told—I'm not a legal expert here—that the one that is probably the most chargeable, if that's a thing, is <laughs> obstructing an official proceeding, and then the defrauding of the United States because of the fake electoral scheme. Is that correct?
13: So. The crux of the case is that they were trying to make the counting of the vote and the certification in Congress not happen. That is purely obstructing, you know, in its It's purest sense, an official proceeding. So that's a solid charge. But uh, as Nick points out, you know, they're looking for, in this case, to compare it to, I don't know, an organized crime case. Who is that Sammy Gravano, who is the person who is high enough in the food chain uh, within the White House who can connect uh, what the planning in the White House was, what the contacts with people outside were, and what led to the storming of the Capitol. What's really interesting, and which got very little attention in this discussion, because we're all focused on who's going to lock up the president, is that going to happen? What kind of historic moment are we in the middle of? Is the the issue of the intelligence failure? The committee's report says they had the intel from the FBI, from DHS, from Secret Service, from Jack Donahue's intel team at the Capitol Police. And they all got most of it right. What was interesting is, who's in the feedback loop of that intel? It was not just going to law enforcement, but it was also going to the White House. The missing link was, none of that intel did or could have predicted that the sitting president of the United States was going to go out on the ellipse that day and tell them, you know, you've got to fight like hell to save the the country, followed by other speakers saying things like trial by combat. It's just very interesting that the White House wasn't feeding that intel back because, of course, they knew what the president was going to do.
2: If you're looking at this, let's say you're in New York City, your expertise here, and a very similar thing happened at City Hall. What do you think the outcome would be? Do you think the the people who were saying fight like hell um, and, you know, all of the the things that you just mentioned, do you think there would be charges? Do you think that how do you think that New York City would handle it on on a local level?
13: Well, that's. It requires the same connective tissue. That's why I'm asking. It would would still have to go into a grand jury. Somebody would have to say this was the plan and this was who was behind it and that it was a legitimate conspiracy. The reason I'm asking is because everyone says, well, you know, but not everyone.
2: Um, The president's supporters say it is unheard of. It would be unheard of to charge a sitting president. And they are just targeting the current, or at least the ex-president, Donald Trump, because he is who he is.
13: It certainly would be historic. But remember, we have history here, which is Donald Trump has been investigated three times, once before by a special counsel, my old boss at the FBI, Bob Mueller. The difference, one stark difference in these cases, uh, was that the guidance from the Department of Justice at the time was that it is not legal to charge a sitting president of the United States with it's a- with not anymore. With, with, he's not a sitting president. So the game is a little different on his side.
3: But I'm interested in what you said about the security failures, because when I was reading the executive summary yesterday, it talked about Tony Arnotto, who who is obviously uh, at the center of what we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson when she testified. And it talked about how he came in and he said he couldn't recall things like what she said about the Secret Services incident. He talked about getting the intelligence that, of course, we, we now know that there were warnings about it, but not being sure what happened once it was passed on to Mark sure, Meadows.
13: Not sure after he heard it whether or not he told anybody. Yeah. And, you know, Tony Ornato is not just your deputy chief of staff. He's a former special agent of the Secret Service, the former head of the presidential detail. So that's not the kind of training you get to not remember things. Final word here. What do you think happens? That's what everyone wants to know.
2: What oh, do you think I, is I think
12: charge? I uh, Donald Trump is going to be indicted. He's going to be indicted in Georgia. And I think he's going to be indicted by the feds. Mm. I think they've got the evidence. We don't know exactly what... A lot of these cooperating witnesses are saying, Uh, and I think that um, you've got someone like Mark Meadows, who's probably the weak link. And if you're looking for the one witness, the most likely to turn, I would vote him the most likely to turn Mm -hmm. uh, as the guy who might put it all together.
11: All right.
3: Thank you both.
12: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Ahead, the January 6th committee member, Congressman Adam Schiff, who you saw yesterday, is going to join us to talk about the historic session yesterday and what he thinks will happen next
2: well this morning the controversial trump era immigration policy title 42 is still in place for now that's because the supreme court chief justice john roberts granted an uh a last minute i should say request by a group of republican-led states to extend the the pandemic border restrictions now he's giving the Biden administration until today to respond. CNN's Ariane DeVogue joins me now. Ariane, good morning to you. This was quite a surprise coming uh, yesterday evening. What is behind Justice Roberts' ruling?
14: right? Supreme Court is under the spotlight again. Remember that this district court in November struck down this policy and gave a deadline until tomorrow. Uh, the Biden administration was okay with that, but it infuriated these Republican-led states. They raced in. They said, we want to become a part of this lawsuit, and um, we want this program to remain in place pending appeal. So here's what Roberts did. He basically put a temporary pause on that deadline, but it's really not a ruling on the merit. He basically just wanted to preserve the status quo to give the justices a little bit of breathing room, a little bit of time to digest all of this before they issue this important order.
3: And so the court asked the administration to respond by 5 p.m. today. Do you have an anticipation of what their response will be? Because we saw what Karine Jean-Pierre were saying yesterday during that briefing at the White House.
14: Right well the thing is is that's a really quick deadline the supreme court knows it's got to move quickly but the biden administration is likely to come in and say look you cannot allow these states that were never a part of this lawsuit in the first place to come in at the uh, at the last minute and ask to put everything on hold. They'll really appeal to the procedural aspect of that. Because, look, some of the justices, they may think, OK, this policy is all right. But they may really wonder if they should allow uh, the states to come in at the last minute. That's what to look for. And we'll see it uh, in briefs. Uh, they're due today at five.
3: All right, Ryan DeVogue, we'll be watching closely. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right, CNN's Rosa Flores is live at the southern border in Brownsville, Texas. Rosa, what are you hearing from officials there who have been, you know, basically were bracing for this to lift. Now they've got this temporary freeze. What are they saying?
15: You know, officials here on the U.S. southern border uh, are breathing a sigh of relief because they were, of course, very concerned about a potential spike and a very quick spike in migration. But I also talked to migrants on the other side of the border, Caitlin, and we have drone video of the camps that have... Uh, gone up just yards from where I am on the other side of the border. And I talked to three migrants who are there and they say that they were joyous, that they were happy, that the reaction from these camps was one of joy. Now, that sounds counterintuitive, of course, because Title 42 allows Border Patrol agents to swiftly return migrants to Mexico. But they say that the U.S. government has issued so many exceptions to Title 42, that's a humanitarian-type parole that allows migrants to go to ports of entry, a handful of them like the ones that you see behind me, and actually get processed. And so they'd rather wait in line, wait in these camps to get one of those exceptions to Title 42, and Caitlin and Don, I've covered this before, I can tell you, the U.S. government has issued thousands of those exceptions to Title 42, and you can't have exceptions to Title 42 Without Title Forty
2: Two, interesting. Do <laughs> you have been reporting, Rosa, that the changing demographics down at down the border still complicate the Title Forty Two issue? What do you mean by that?
15: You know, Don, you're absolutely right. Because earlier this year, if you just look at the data. The number of migrants, the surge was being driven by migrants from Central America, from Mexico. And so Title 42 was a very effective tool for the U.S. government because they were able to apply it and swiftly return those migrants back to Mexico. Well, late in the summer, if you look at the data, the numbers show you this. The surge was driven by uh, migrants from Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua. And so... Those countries, Mexico wasn't taking them back, and the U.S. government has very frosty relationships with those countries, so they couldn't take them back. And so that's why we saw back in October an extension to Title 42 to include Venezuelans. And that's when we started to see the camps built in Mexico, because Venezuelans knew that if they crossed the border, they could be returned very swiftly under Title 42.
3: Yeah, we've seen the tension it's caused between the United States and Mexico. Rosa Flores, thank you. Ahead, we are going to be joined by Judge Richard Cortez of Hidalgo County, Texas. He asked President Biden to visit the border twice, something that Biden has not done. He'll tell us what he's seeing on the ground.
2: Well, this morning, there is a race against the clock on Capitol Hill for lawmakers to pass a massive $1.7 trillion government funding bill. The expectation is that a catastrophic shutdown will be avoided. But there is little room for error as government funding expires Friday at midnight. Sen. Lauren Fox, live for us on Capitol Hill with more this morning. Lauren, good morning, what is in the bill?
9: Well, Don, this bill dropped in the middle of the night. This is, of course, an 11th hour negotiation that yielded this result $1.7 trillion in government spending. This will keep the government funded through September of next year. And it includes some key provisions that lawmakers were fighting for, including the Electoral Count Act. That would really shore up the vice president's role as just a ceremonial one on a day like January 6th that we saw Two years ago, we also expect that this bill will include $45 billion in Ukraine aid, as well as $40 billion in supplemental funding for floods, fires, and other natural disasters across the country. There's really something in here for everyone, which is why leadership is very confident that they are going to be able to move this bill forward before the Christmas holiday, Don.
2: So the list of states banning TikTok is growing, and now a ban is being included in the appropriations bill. Why are elected officials targeting TikTok?
9: Well, there's a lot of concern right now, Don, on Capitol Hill about the way that TikTok is being used on federal devices, and that is what this ban that it is included in this appropriations bill will be. This was pushed by Josh Hawley, but also supported by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. These two lawmakers obviously don't usually see eye to eye, but it just shows you the diverse voices up here on Capitol Hill that were supportive of this. And of course, this is the last vehicle, this huge funding bill to move through Capitol Hill. So it's very, very important That anything that lawmakers want to include gets put in this bill because next year the dynamic on Capitol Hill is going to be very different with Republicans controlling the House of Representatives.
2: All right, Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill this morning. Thank you very much for that. So he was the voice of the Oath Keepers and later a witness before the January 6th committee. He's going to join us live on what he thinks about the referral for criminal charges against Trump. Plus, this.
3: It was one of the most iconic moments from Russia's invasion. Ahead, CNN's exclusive look at Snake Island. It's the first time journalists have actually been able to go there since that infamous radio exchange. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A year-and-a-half-long investigation, the January 6th committee is going to release its full report. Obviously, we got to look at it yesterday during that final public session on Capitol Hill. The entire report is based on more than 1,000 interviews with witnesses. One person that they spoke to is a former spokesperson for the right-wing militia group The Oath Keepers. Jason Van Tatenhove testified before the committee back in July. This is what he said.
11: I think we need to quit mincing words and just talk about truths. And what it was gonna be was an armed revolution. I mean, people died that day. Law enforcement officers died this day. There was a gallows set up in front of the Capitol. This could have been the spark that started a new civil war, and no one would have won there. That would have been good for no one.
3: And Jason joins us now. Jason, thanks so much for being here this morning. You had said that you wanted accountability here. Do you think you got it yesterday?
11: I think we're certainly a a step forward in that. Um, It still remains to be seen what the DOJ will do with uh, the referrals. But I think more than anything, we had a victory for for America, uh, even just within the public perception realm. You know, with all the evidence laid out, in in such an easy-to-digest way. I I think it's becoming harder and harder to keep perpetrating these lies.
3: Do you think if the Justice Department doesn't heed what the committee has referred to them and doesn't actually charge Trump, does that still look like accountability to you?
11: Um, I mean, again, I think we're, we're dealing in the realm of public perception because that public perception goes on to inform voting, and it also goes on to inform policy. Um, So I I think it's a win either way.
3: You were a spokesman for the Oath Keepers, and we were just speaking with Nick Ackerman about this, talking about how he doesn't feel like there was a, a sufficient connection drawn between the extremist groups and what happened that day and circling it back to former President Trump himself. Do you think that that could have been a connection that was made in a stronger way to sig- signify what that actually looked like?
11: I don't know if they had the evidence to reconnect that in a sound way. Now, I personally believe that the Trump administration had been reaching out to right-wing militias um, and then back during his campaign days. Um, but I, I don't know if it was done necessarily in a direct way. So I don't know how much evidence they would have been able to uncover that that drew a clear line from A to B on that.
3: What does it signify? You talked about what it signifies for, for public perception of Trump himself. What does the summary of this report, the volumes of evidence we're expected to get when they release the full report, what does that mean for groups like the Oath Keepers? What kind of signal does it send to them, you think?
11: I think it sends a signal that there will be accountability because largely before this, this happening, there was no accountability, you know, from Bundy Ranch on the leadership of these organizations had never been held to real legal account. They had gotten off fairly scot-free and it was, you know, the lower level palms, I would say, that that really paid any price, if any, that and the victims of of their actions. So you know, having leadership actually have to pay a debt to society based on their actions and, and their leadership, I think is is definitely a win. And I think it will have a, a quieting effect to a certain degree. I think it's, it'll splinter things. Um, it, it remains to be seen kind of what will rise up in that power vacuum after people like Stuart Rhodes have uh, been put into prison. Um, but we'll just have to see how that goes.
3: Jason Van Tatenhove, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Coming up.
4: Get off before the waves get too big and before the Russians know we're here.
3: You're going to want to see this. CNN is getting the first visit to that infamous, that famous Black Sea Island, Snake Island, where defiant Ukrainian defenders stood up to the Russians. We'll tell you what Will Ripley saw that's ahead.
6: Plus,
2: Republican Congressman-elect George Santos under fire following a report, it's very interesting, questioning whether he lied to voters about his background and other things, a gap in his, gaps in his resumes, we're going to talk about that next.
14: Page, the-
2: a little Pete right there of the sun coming up. Welcome back to CNN this morning, everyone. Coming up... They put their middle fingers in the air in defiance against the Russians. Now CNN is first to visit Snake Island. What it looks like now. Plus, House Democrats planning to vote on whether to publicly release years of Trump's tax returns. What should we expect? And China's COVID surge could cost nearly 1 million deaths. That is according to a new study. What else does the data tell us? We're live in Beijing straight ahead.
3: But well, we start with that remarkable story that Don mentioned there. You know Snake Island, where Ukrainian soldiers did not hold back when, at the beginning of Russia's invasion, a Russian warship threatened to bomb them in the early days of the invasion.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: That moment became a symbol of defiance, Ukrainians celebrating the resistance by creating a stamp even that showed a soldier flipping off the Russian forces. And now in a CNN exclusive, we had the chance to actually visit the island for the first time since that infamous exchange. CNN's Will Ripley is live in Odessa. Will, tell us what it was like to go there, because this has become such a, a mainstay of the key moments of this invasion so far.
4: Yes, Caitlin, Snake Island really is almost achieved legendary status here in Ukraine. And CNN has been working for months with our excellent team on the ground here to try to make this trip happen, to show people what it's like on this remote piece of rock in the middle of the Black Sea that is strategically crucial for Ukraine because it allows them to bring cargo in and export cargo out. If they don't control Snake Island, Russia could barricade the whole place, especially this port city of Odessa. But the Ukrainians are there. They're holding down the fort. And they told us their remarkable story. As the saying goes, whoever controls Snake Island controls the Black Sea. The safest way to get there, the Ukrainian military's inflatable speedboat with seating for six. It's small enough to stay out of sight. We are really getting tossed around out here, but we need to take a small boat because we need to stay out of the sights of Russian reconnaissance aircraft. Safer than a helicopter, but no protection from the Black Sea's big waves, bitter cold and whipping winds, not to mention the mines. By the end of our stomach-turning journey, Snake Island's craggy cliffs are a welcome sight. Up close, a pier in pieces previews the destruction we're about to see. We enter Snake Island by climbing up a pile of half-sunken, slippery sea blocks. We're the first journalists allowed here since Ukraine recaptured Snake Island five months ago. Russia blanketed the island with booby traps before bailing out. The soldiers told us we need to follow in their footsteps exactly, and we need to be very careful where we step. This whole island is littered with landmines, unexploded ordnance, basically a powder keg. A powder keg with plenty of cats wandering through the wreckage of 10 brutal months of war. Not a snake in sight. On February 24th, the first day of Russia's full-scale invasion, Russia's Black Sea flagship, the Moskva, aimed its arsenal at Snake Island, demanding dozens of Ukrainian defenders surrender or die. What happened next is how legends are made. Five words, seen at the time as a final act of defiance. Everyone on Snake Island presumed dead. Russian bombs raining down, the island's radio went silent. Those five words telling the Russian warship where to go, instantly iconic, inspiring t-shirts, postage stamps, pop songs. Ukraine later learned Snake Island's defenders were alive, prisoners of war. Some released in a POW swap earlier this year, others remain in Russian captivity. Is it intimidating to look out and see a giant Russian warship and know that you guys are a small group here? If anybody tells you it's not intimidating, he's a liar, says Fortuna, a volunteer soldier. It was chaos. The garrison here was small. Russia captured the island quickly. Taking the island back took a long time. On Snake Island, we find a graveyard of Russian weapons. The result of relentless Ukrainian attacks for several months earlier this year. This is one of Russia's most expensive anti-aircraft weapon systems. As you can see, not much use anymore. In April, Ukraine says its missiles sank the Moskva. Where did it go? The bottom of the Black Sea. A humiliated Kremlin says their flagship caught fire, sinking in stormy weather. In May, a Ukrainian drone strike on Snake Island turned this helicopter into a fireball. This is what's left of that Russian helicopter, pulverized, along with its crew of about eight people. A twisted relic of Russia's ill-fated plan to transform this remote Black Sea outpost into a permanent aircraft carrier. What's it like to live out here? We need to be on guard 24-7, Fortuna says, so we never get bored. We notice his Russian accent. Turns out Fortuna was born in Russia. He moved to Ukraine and got married before the war. Now part of a Russian volunteer corps protecting Snake Island for Ukraine. How do you feel about Russia now? For us, they're enemies no matter what. Most of the Russian volunteer corps lived in Ukraine before the invasion, he says. We were living life, had families, good jobs. And here comes Russia attacking us. If some other country attacked us, we would fight too. Life on Snake Island means almost total isolation. Soldiers tell me the simple act of switching on a cell phone brings Russian rockets within 40 minutes. They say Russia attacked the island just last month. We are now out of time. We've been on the island just about an hour, and it's important that we get off before the waves get too big and before the Russians know we're here. The Ukrainians say Russia blew up Snake Island's historic lighthouse and museum on the site of an ancient Greek temple. Evil spirits are rumored to roam these 46 acres of rock and sand, bearing witness to centuries of bloodshed. Ukraine is not the first nation to control Snake Island, but vows it will be the last. Those defenders of Snake Island were presumed dead. People mourned them and then they found out they were alive and now they've been awarded as national heroes. How did they do it? How did they muster up that bravery in the face of of that Russian warship it was teamwork. It was being there together in the brutal cold, something that, you know, my photojournalist, Peter Runin, our local producer, Kostya Hak, and our producer, Pierre Baran, we all certainly got a little taste of that. I've never been more cold in my life. I think I can speak for the other guys. They feel the same way. And yet it makes you feel alive. It makes you stronger. And it was that strength that got those Ukrainians through such a horrific ordeal, Caitlin. Yeah.
3: yeah, this small island, but but so important to this overall Will Ripley, thank you.
2: They're fighting for every bit of territory that they can hold on to, and they're doing yeah. a good job. At. Yeah. yeah.
3: All right, Harvey Weinstein, switching topics, has been convicted of rape again. The disgraced movie mogul is now facing even more prison time. We have more for you ahead.
2: Well, Donald Trump is a focus of another House committee meeting today. This one is about his taxes. Yes, there is another one today. This one about his taxes. What could be at stake here? We're talking about it. That's
16: next.
3: All right, breaking news just in a Northern California California county is on high alert this morning after a 6.4 magnitude earthquake shook Humboldt County near the city of Ferndale more than 55,000 people have lost power this morning this video is from a resident showing the damage inside her house after the tremors so far no reports of a, no, no reports of a tsunami linked to the quake but we will keep you posted with the latest developments as we learn more.
2: Mm-hmm. We'll keep you updated on that when we're following. It has been a years-long battle full of contradictory promises over former President Donald Trump's tax returns.
11: I have a great company. I've done a great job, which if I run, you'll see how, what a great job because I'll do a full disclosure of fin- finances. Including and I your will tax tell returns? You, uh, we'll look at that. Maybe I'm going to do the tax returns when Obama does his birth certificate. If I decide to run for office, I'll produce my tax returns. Absolutely. The answer is, yeah, I, I would do it. I mean, I would do Three it. years, five but years. I will, tell you, I, I will tell you up front, as a private person, you, I would be, and I'm, you know, I'm very proud of this. I want to pay as little taxes of as, course, as a private of course. person. When the audit is complete, I'll release my returns. I have no problem with it. It doesn't matter. Let her release her emails, and I'll release my tax returns immediately.
17: And they showed he didn't pay any federal income tax. So That makes if me he's smart. Paid- Actually, I
11: paid tax. but And you'll see that as soon as my tax returns. Uh, it, it's under audit. They've been under audit for a long time. The IRS does not treat me well. I called my accountants, under audit. I'm going to release them as soon as we can. I want to do it. And it'll show how successful, how great this company is. Promises, promises,
2: and then more excuses. And today, with only two weeks of control left, the Democratic-led House Ways and Means Committee is likely to hold a vote on whether to release several years of the former president's tax returns. So joining me now, investigative reporter for The New York Times, Russ Buettner, who has been looking into Trump's tax Taxes for years. Russ, good morning to you. I'm so glad you're here. As you saw, and you know, the clip that we put on there promises, 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 as I said, and then more excuses. He has done everything possible to stop people from seeing his tax return. So today could possibly be worse for the former president than even yesterday's criminal referrals from the January 6th committee, because this is something I think that concerns him the most his wealth and whether he was accurate about his taxes, which will show what he's actually worth.
8: Yeah, that's a good point, Don. I I think this really goes to the heart of not only his, how he's presented himself to voters and to the public at large, but how he sees himself as well, which is uh, a man of incredible wealth that he can never seem to find the outer ranges of, the billions just go up and up and up every time he talks about it. And his tax returns, the 20 plus years worth that we reviewed um, showed a very different story that um, the bulk of his money has come from entertainment, from the apprentice, from licensing deals that required no real business expertise on his part and from inheritance from his father. And the businesses that he has run have kind of suffered or been inconsistent at best. Um, and if there's a report that comes out of this and returns themselves, I think it'll probably show uh, what, the same thing that we found.
2: Did did they show that eleven billion or so dollars in assets? The billionaire that he claims to be. Did, when you looked at those tax returns, did they actually confirm that?
8: Tax returns don't show the value of assets. They'll have a book value, which is just uh, how you kind of handled the accounting over the years. Uh, there are ways that, that businesses can be valued based on their revenue. It can give you an
2: indication, uh, though. And
8: I don't think you. It is an indication. You're right. I mean, if you're valuing a golf course at five billion dollars and your profits on and aren't enough to keep the to do anything, but, you know, sort of keep it afloat, um, that sort of suggests it's maybe not worth what you're saying it is.
2: So, Russ, what happens if the committee releases some or all of the tax data and what should we expect to see? How is this going to work?
8: Well, I think they're going to vote today on whether what they're going to do, whether they're going to try to release a report out of this or the returns themselves. If they're going to do that, it's obviously going to happen very quick because the Democrats are about to lose control of that committee. And then we should see one of the more interesting things is he's had, he talked about the audit in the great clips that you ran at the start of this. He's had an ongoing audit by the IRS for more than 10 years of a $73 million refund uh, requested and received in about 2010, that was all the taxes he had paid uh, for most of the last 20 years on the initial windfall from the apprentice. So we'll see whether he's resolved that, I think, whether it's still outstanding. We'll see the nature of any audits the IRS may have done from him. We, We could if they choose to release that. We'll see, again, how much taxes he's paid. When we looked at it, he hadn't paid Any taxes in 10 of the prior 15 years. And in two of those years, he's only paid $750. Um, uh, So that's that's a lot of stuff. We could also see um, how COVID uh, impacted his business. His businesses, the ones he owns outright, are largely hospitality businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, He has banquet facilities, his golf courses, hotels, those sorts of things really suffered during that during that bad time. And we could see part of the pressure that forced him to start selling off assets, including his kind of crown jewel, the, the hotel, in Washington, hotel in Washington, D.C. D.C. Listen,
2: I got to ask you real quickly if you can, because I'm running out of time here. Sorry about that. But listen, he has spent the bulk of his time, he and his um, you know, allies, uh, buffering him from accusations. He has attacked the Justice Department, he's attacked the FBI, he's attacked the media because the lies don't, are not in his favor. If the committee found that Trump didn't pay taxes or did something wrong, what do they do? Do they ask the IRS to do something about it? I mean, do they alert the DOJ because he's also attacked the IRS as well?
8: Either one of those things. I mean, he's attacked the IRS in part because of this very audit. Um, So yeah, I would expect, of course, he started that last night. He started trying to spin what he expected people to see on these returns as not important. Um, and he's always said the IRS is out to get him. There's no hint that's going to change course.
2: Russ, thank you very much. We appreciate you joining us early this morning. Thank
8: you. Thank, thank
2: you, Don. Former FTX Chief Executive Sam Bankman-Fried to continue his extradition hearing after a chaotic day in court. When will he when will we finally see him return to the United States? Straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
3: All right. This morning, a new study says that China's sudden exit from its zero covid policy could lead to potentially nearly a million deaths. After three years of incredibly strict lockdowns, mass testing, experts are warning that the country is extremely unprepared for an unprecedented wave of infections. CNN's Selena Wang is live in Beijing with more. Selena, what are officials saying now there about whether or not they feel that they're prepared for this?
18: Well, look, some public health experts in China have even admitted that they've been, quote, unprepared in certain aspects. But that estimate of nearly one million deaths that's coming from some new studies, that is a worst case scenario. The researchers are saying if China can adequately increase the vaccination rate, if it can boost the antiviral treatments, that it could reduce the death numbers by hundreds of thousands. But what health experts are really worried about is what happens when COVID spreads to these rural areas with a much weaker health infrastructure. We're already seeing the hospital system under huge strain in major cities. Hospitals say they've been dealing with outbreaks among staff. Long lines like these are forming outside of hospitals in big cities, like these videos from Hangzhou and Wuhan. You can see the lines snaking as far as the eye can see. Now, China has also only announced a few COVID deaths since reopening. But what we see on the ground tells a different story. Just today, I went to a major crematorium in Beijing, and you can see the long line of cars waiting to get to that cremation area. The parking lot was full of cars as well. Several people told me they're loved ones had died from COVID. An employee told me that they
3: are swamped with dead bodies. Wow. Selena Wang will be following it closely. Thank you.
2: And so to come here on CNN this morning, the big question now hanging over Washington and the country, will the DOJ make a move against the former president? Oh, here we are. Where are you? Hope you're cozy at home <laughs> watching.
3: Drinking some coffee.
2: <laughs> exactly. A lot of coffee. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Poppy is off today. The question is because they're running out of time. Well, they made some changes. What will happen at the border? Chief Justice John Roberts temporarily froze a Trump era border restriction in place.
3: What will the White House do? Also, four criminal charges. Those are the referrals the January 6th committee is delivering in its report on Trump. But now it's up to the Justice Department to decide whether or not they're actually going to charge him with a crime.
2: And an Arctic blast this week, bringing the coldest Christmas in nearly 40 years. It is expected to hit millions and prompt travel chaos. We are live in the weather center for you. So, burr. Is the word. But first, Title 42, still in effect for now after Chief Justice John Roberts intervenes. A Trump era policy lets officials swiftly expel migrants at the U.S. border and was set to end tomorrow. Roberts has asked the Biden administration to respond by 5 o'clock today to an emergency appeal from GOP led states to keep it in place. So let's find out what the White House is saying about this now. So we go to MJ Lee at the White House. Good morning. The White House surprised by this
8: ruling?
19: The short answer, Don, is no, they are not surprised. They obviously were aware that these 19 states led by Republican leaders had filed for this emergency application and knew that one of the options that could play out was this kind of temporary order that we saw from the Supreme Court yesterday. And you saw how quickly the DHS responded to that order and basically said, yes, we will abide by this and Title 42 will stay in place for now. Anyone who tries to cross the border illegally will be sent back to Mexico swiftly. Uh, now, both the DHS and the White House, they have been clear about one thing, and that is that the work that they have been doing on the ground will continue. Uh, that is to say the various preparations that these agencies have been making to prepare for a potential surge in migrants coming across the border. We've talked about this so much over the last couple of weeks. Uh, b- boosting personnel, hiring uh, more people to deal with the situation, trying to get more resources to, again, deal with the surge. Uh, the White House is making clear that they are going to continue focusing on that work. So
2: the response is set for five o'clock today. That's what the court asked the Biden administration to do. Uh, Any indication on what they're going to do?
19: Yeah, you know, you really get a sense of how fast-moving the situation is, that Justice Roberts essentially gave the administration one day to respond to that emergency application. Uh, Look, I don't think this administration has a choice but to abide by that uh, deadline that was set by Justice Roberts, that is 5 p.m. today. Uh, We know that this is a legal process. The administration uh, really just has to go with everything that is thrown their way by the courts. Uh, But again, I think it is just worth emphasizing that for right. Right now, the number one priority that the White House says uh, is top of mind for them is preparing for this surge uh, because they know that this is likely a temporary freeze and that at some point, Title 42 is going to end. Just the question right now is exactly when that is
3: going to happen, Don.
2: MJ Lee at the White House this morning. Thank you, MJ.
3: All right. Also this morning, CNN is on the ground. We are seeing significant movement on the border, speaking to families who have crossed the southern border as Title 42 remains in limbo, which means so many of these families do as well. CNN's David Culver is live in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. David, what are you seeing there this morning? Because I know we've been checking in with you every day. What's happening on the ground right now?
20: Caitlin, a significant mobilization that just started underway uh, probably about 30 minutes ago. I want to pan over here. This is from the Mexico side, now looking onto the U.S. side. You can see on this strip of of the riverbank of the Rio Grande, this is what appears to be either U.S. military or Texas National Guard. It's not clear. And either way, they're in military uh, uniforms, and they're pulling out barbed wire here. Now, this is a part that migrants have been for several weeks, if not months, and we were here last month, have been using as a staging ground. They were camping here on the Mexico side. They'd simply cross over this part of the Rio Grande, and then they'd position themselves there. And about 45 minutes ago, hundreds were here. They had campfires lit. They were waiting to be processed. That all changed as dozens of Humvees moved in. Guys, let's move up here real quick. I just wanna walk you along the border and show you what is taking place right now. Again, it looks like military Humvees, perhaps National Guard, but then we're also seeing in the midst of that, David, if you can point just right, right in between here, it looks like Texas law enforcement as well. We have not seen this type of movement here uh, in our time uh, covering this. And, and it does seem that this is perhaps in preparation for what could be a surge. Of course, this has been a very popular crossing ground. And on the Mexico side, they've obviously been concerned enough to clear out the encampment that once was here, perhaps some coordination as well with Mexican law enforcement because we've been seeing more patrols by Mexican police at the same time. You'll notice even over here, we've got a few folks who are sitting out in blankets. These are migrants who are on the other side, were also in the line to be processed. They, for some reason, decided not to continue through and they came back over to the Mexican side to basically just take in what's happening right now. But this was the space, Caitlin, that people were using to walk over and to then start the processing to be uh, considered for asylum. And many of them would go through and under Title 42, which is, as we know, still in place, they would be immediately expelled, some of them. Some of them were actually able to get through. But right now, I mean, this indicates that there's a lot of concern at this processing in particular because it was so popular that now you have what is this significant mobilization that appears to be trying to stem what could be a massive surge
3: and and david i know that we have been watching this spot you've been reporting on this so closely one can you tell us what time does it appear that these these troops arrived i know we're still trying to figure out if it's the 400 or so Na- yeah. texas national guard members that were put on alert yesterday in anticipation of something like this what time did they arrive and are they actively moving yeah. people out of the area
20: It was about 4.30 uh, at local time, so that's about 6.30 in the morning, your time, Caitlin. And they did have several hundred people who were lined up. And, And those folks who were preparing to be processed, some of them chose to continue on up to be processed, others decided to come back over on the Mexican side. Either way, the campfires were quickly extinguished by what appears to be this Texas law enforcement, perhaps Texas National Guard or US military, And then they immediately started putting in these posts. You can see it right across here. That's what they're putting in. They're putting in these these, uh, large posts that then they're wrapping out uh, massive, look like reams of of barbed wire to then build this infrastructure. And it's interesting, if we point just past them up here, David, if we can just show where where these uh, officials are, there's another chain link fence that went up in recent days. We thought perhaps that was the infrastructure that was going to be used to help funnel some of the migrants in an orderly manner. Now it looks like they really want to close this off, or at least uh, significantly monitor it in a way that does not allow people to freely cross over as they were. Because, Gateland, just crossing this portion here is illegal. That's breaking the law. And that's, of course, how many of the migrants were going over. They'd cross from here, Mexico, into the U.S., and they'd position themselves there until the processing would start. And the processing would go in waves. Sometimes they'd let several dozen people in at a time, and then they'd hold people waiting in an orderly fashion. And I I will say, even the US officials, they seem in many ways overwhelmed with the numbers that we've seen from this portion alone. And yet they've still been coming out trying to give people blankets, because it's freezing cold. A lot of them are still wet after having crossed over. And so in a humanitarian way, they've been trying to facilitate this. But now it seems that this has become a significant law enforcement uh, mobilization.
3: Well, and we saw some people, you know, just the other day when you were reporting from this spot, they were changing their clothes after they had crossed over because obviously they presumably got wet and were cold. Have you seen anything like this, though, since you've been on the ground there reporting?
20: Nothing like this. No, th- this, this really indicates that this has taken a whole nother tone right now. And to your point of people shedding things, I mean, they don't come with a lot of belongings from this portion anyways, and most of what we have seen have been families. And if you kind of look across here, it might be a bit dark, but along the the slope going up the hill where you kind of climb up, and that's the entrance to where the processing has been taking place, you'll notice would have been a lot of discarded blankets. So they'll, they'll make their way up, they'll throw aside any sort of clothing that's either wet or things that they simply don't want to carry on with them, things that they've been given at the shelters nearby or things that they've taken with them. Many of them are from Venezuela, so they've had them with them for their month long trek to get to this point. They'll toss them aside, and then they'll continue up. But uh, nothing like this in our time being here, Caitlin. And and this indicates uh, that there are some serious concerns, certainly at this portion, but uh, perhaps shows what's happening uh, along this border so as to prevent what could be the end at some point of Title 42. Again, we know that the Chief Justice has held it and frozen it in place so as to not lift it, meaning that this... Trump era policy that has been widely used under President Biden so as to expel immediately migrants really in the name of COVID prevention is still in place for now. And law enforcement ready for whatever reason are now positioning themselves so that if it is lifted or even if folks on this Mexican side, migrants who are planning to go over haven't gotten word that it's still in place and perhaps are are presuming that tomorrow it'll be lifted in any case preparations are underway, and they're taking this seriously. Hey David,
2: it's Don, I've got to ask you if you've been able to speak to uh, any of the people trying to come over, and I would imagine this scenes like this aren't just playing out where you are and if they have, you said, you know, if they don't know, if they've gotten word that it's been frozen, what have you, have you, have you been able to speak with anyone, uh, any of the people coming over, and are there multiple scenes like this playing out on the border to your knowledge?
20: To the latter part, done. we're working to get that information and trying to really figure out who these law enforcement members are. Uh, clearly, Texas law enforcement part of this because we've seen the emblems on the side of the vehicles. As to the migrants, you can see a few of them, David, if we can just show over here real quick, have, have positioned themselves in blankets, have made their way back over here. Um, it's not clear why they didn't want to go through the processing. we did speak with them briefly. They seemed really just kind of shocked and stunned at what happened and really just a matter of minutes. I mean, a lot of them were sitting there trying to keep warm by fires on the US side and they had several fires lit uh, and then suddenly everything was extinguished. People were said to go either into the processing or to move along back to the Mexican side. So it seems that the migrants here that we've spoken with are just trying to get some more information. And it's interesting, Don, a lot of them are in touch with folks who are either family or friends or people they've met on their journey to this point and trying to figure out what's happening on the other side. And a lot of the times that can take several hours, if not days, because cell phones are taken away, people are put into the process uh, of being considered for asylum. And so that contact is not immediate. But that's oftentimes what this space has been on the Mexican side is the staging ground to try to gather information and figure out, okay, can we now cross and perhaps can we get in? As of now, they're just watching this unfold as we are live and seeing that this What has been a very, very common, to be frank, a very easy crossing has now a major barrier being put up.
3: David Culver, fascinating reporting. We're going to stay in touch with you as you are seeing more there on the ground as we are watching what these horses are doing and learning more about them. Uh, We'll stay in touch with you throughout the show.
2: Uh, That's the scenes along the border now to Washington. And one big question lingers after the January 6th committee's blistering final public meeting. Will the former president be charged with a crime? Let's take a look at how we got here and what happens next.
1: Every president in our history has defended this orderly transfer of authority, except one.
2: A simple closing statement from the committee. All roads lead to Donald Trump. The executive summary putting a fine point on it. The evidence has led to an overriding and straightforward conclusion. The central cause of January 6th was one man, former president Donald Trump, who many others followed. None of the events of January 6th would have happened without him.
6: He lost the 2020 election and knew it. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell.
2: Well, the committee referring four crimes to the Justice Department that they say the former president committed while trying to stay in the White House. The first charge alone, obstruction of an official proceeding, could carry a 25-year sentence. If charged and convicted, it would likely be life for Donald Trump.
8: Ours is not a system of justice where foot soldiers go to jail and the masterminds and ringleaders get a free pass.
2: And the committee revealing new details from top advisors, even as some of Trump's closest allies, like Hope Ix, worried that the bogus fraud claims were damaging his legacy. But Trump persisted.
9: He said something along the lines of, um, you know, nobody will care about my legacy if I lose. Um, so that won't matter. Um, the only thing that matters is... Is winning.
2: The committee also determining that Trump knew the fraud allegations he was pushing were false, but continued to amplify them.
21: The committee has evidence that ex President Trump planned to declare victory and unlawfully to call for the vote counting to stop, and that he told numerous allies about his intent in the weeks before the election.
2: The committee also highlighting Trump's $250 million fundraising haul between the election and January 6th raised primarily off claims of election fraud that did not exist, questioning whether any of the money was used to pay lawyers who may have tried to obstruct the congressional investigation, citing evidence from one unnamed witness who was urged to stay loyal to Trump.
21: The witness believed this was an effort to affect her testimony and we are concerned that these efforts may have been a strategy to prevent the committee from finding the truth.
2: So now what? What happens now? All eyes are on the Justice Department. With the federal investigation now being led by Special Counsel Jack Smith, it appears DOJ investigators are already looking at much of the conduct that the committee has highlighted. But whether the department brings charges will depend on whether the facts and the evidence support a prosecution. Attorney General Merrick Garland has said that. Garland will make the ultimate call on charging decisions. For the committee, the end is near. The current Congress ends on January 3rd, and that's when the committee will cease to exist. But its full report comes out tomorrow, and additional transcripts and documents will be released before the end of the year. And that report will be one for the history books, certain to be studied for generations.
3: So for more perspective on what happened yesterday, let's bring in Maggie Haberman, CNN's political analyst and senior political correspondent at The New York Times. What did you hear about how the former president and his orbit was reacting to yesterday?
22: Supposedly he wasn't watching much of it, which I believe, Caitlin, it was a pretty short hearing from the ones we've seen. But look, he's not happy about it. Most of the people in his orbit were actually Uh, A little anxious about this heading into today, there was some prediction that there might be some kind of rally around Trump effect, which we saw right after the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago in August. I'm not seeing a lot of signs of that yet. It's possible it will come. But look, you know, everything with Donald Trump gets measured by, do I actually get charged? Is this actually facing criminality? Now, this is unprecedented. This was a really damning day for him. But does it move him closer to being indicted? I don't think we know yet.
3: The broader scheme of things, because this isn't the only thing facing him, obviously. He's got actual investigations that I'm yeah. told his attorneys are actually much more concerned about. But what about the idea of his political influence, given these charges are unprecedented with these criminal referrals? He's got all of these other investigations that we've been talking about. What does that mean for him and his third run? Look, his third
22: run has been, we're five weeks in now. It's been pretty lackluster so far. He, at minimum, seems distracted or not that interested. We'll see what it looks like when we head into a new year. There's certainly clear signs that his influence in the party is waning. Now, we don't know what that will mean going into next year. Do other candidates challenge him? Does Ron DeSantis, who is, you know, the hoped for candidate for a lot of donors, does he even run or do people ultimately decide to sit it out? But there's no question that Trump is, is a more diminished figure than at any point that we have seen him since 2015.
2: It seems like there has been sort of a a shift here, right? And I'm not sure if it's glacial yet. But I I found it interesting that you tweeted that these referrals underscore the reality that Trump is facing, a diminished figure politically, as you just said there. Um, You think it's possible that this could—I'm not sure if it's so— that it could provoke a backlash and even strengthen uh, the former president? That's what happened before, I'm not sure if that's the same. If that's the case this time,
22: that's something that some Republicans who, who don't like him, to be clear, who I spoke to yesterday, who didn't want to say this publicly because they didn't want to seem like they were undermining the committee, but they are concerned about that because Don, we have seen that pattern so many times where there is some rallying effect, and I think that's something to watch for right now. Again, I'm not seeing signs of that yet. Now maybe it will come, but I think that is a clear measure of whether his influence has waned. Is just people are just sick of kind of running to defend him all the time.
2: Well, isn't the silence, the silence is deafening. I mean, even though he is saying, you know, this is a witch hunt, it's a sham, it's, you know, this is same old talking Mm -hmm. points. The silence is kind of deafening. um, And how he has diminished, especially when it comes to the media and his voice, it's interesting, it's an interesting turn, because before he would have been standing in front of microphones, everyone would have been paying attention, and that does not appear to be happening. And his allies would have been out there saying, you know, this is terrible, we stand by him. I don't see much of that.
22: We'll see what happens next week. I think that there are allies of his in the the House among Republicans who are planning on doing some kind of counterattack on this report. Once the transcripts start coming out, and we're expecting that to start tomorrow, Mm -hmm. I expect they will start looking through those interviews, picking through things that they can say were inconsistencies, things that they can highlight as, look, you know, this witness said X, Y, Z, and this was fair to him. I think they will try to undermine Cassidy Hutchinson, who was the star witness. So I think we don't know yet what it's Mm -hmm. going to look like. But certainly in the first day after, there is a real... Fatigue all around
3: yes. about him. So what we'll about putting it. Hope Hicks. That really stood out to me oh, yeah. yesterday. She obviously testified much later in the January 6th investigation. I think it was late October. Kellyanne Conway was actually late November. What did you make of hearing her talk about her conversations with Trump, with Eric Hirschman, a top Trump attorney? So
22: there's two separate issues. One is on the on the matters of, of fact and what was actually discussed. I've been told by Uh, One person who who is is aware of both of their testimony that actually their conversation about whether to get Trump to say something was not ahead of January 6th. It was actually during the riot and that Hirschman was trying to get Trump to say something when that was taking place that it wasn't before. In terms of what Hicks was concerned about, I've been told that it was not that she was concerned that there was going to be an insurrection at the Capitol. It's that she was just concerned there were going to be protests and counter protests, you know, something more similar to, to Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. But it was still really striking because there's no one who is more of a loyalist than her. And hearing her talk about how he was doing things that were undermining and damaging to himself and that she clearly didn't believe what he was saying. And, and you know, to be clear, she was one of a, a cast of dozens at that point who were saying this is not reality, but we never hear her speak publicly. And it was very striking. And the same with Kellyanne Conway, who we do hear speak publicly, but not about stuff like that, yeah.
2: yeah. And not at all. It appears that they were concerned about his legacy at all leading up to this. Actually, him saying, I don't really care about that. My legacy will be whether I
22: win this. Right. Because all he sees is his legacy as being a winner. He didn't care about anything else that he had accomplished during his presidency.
2: Maggie, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And straight ahead here, Congressman Adam Schiff will join us to discuss a historic hearing. What charges he thinks has the strongest evidence.
3: Also this morning, multiple U.S. airlines are issuing travel waivers ahead of the winter blizzards that are forecast for the Midwest, a potential bomb cyclone that is set to hit the Northeast later this week. CNN's meteorologist Jennifer Gray is in the weather center. Jennifer, if you've got a flight booked, what should you know about this?
17: Well, if you're in the upper Midwest, the Northern Plains, you might want to be thinking about changing that because the weather is about to really get rough across those areas. The storm system right now is just as in its infancy, uh, but it will be expanding. It will be definitely strengthening over the coming days. We have winter weather advisories, winter storm watches out across much of the Northern Plains, the Northern Rockies. Here we go. As we get into Thursday morning, we're going to start seeing blizzard conditions across portions of Minnesota. Chicago could experience. Blizzard conditions. This is Friday morning, so Thursday night into Friday is really the rough timestamp for Chicago. We could see up to a foot of snow across portions of the Midwest, even the Northern Plains, picking up quite a bit of snow. And this snow dives very far to the south, touching even portions of Arkansas. And those wind chills, Caitlin, will be anywhere from 40 to 50 degrees below zero across portions of the Plains in the Midwest. Oh my God! Your jackets,
3: Jennifer Gray. Thank <laughs> yes. you. Thanks,
21: Jennifer. <laughs>
3: All right, the unprecedented move and the new revelations from the January 6th committee in its final public session. Former President Trump's former defense secretary, Mark Esper, is going to join us with his thoughts.
2: Okay, so this story is fascinating. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, and I'm obsessed with it. A New York Republican who was just elected to Congress might have some explaining to do about his resume. Wait till you hear the details.
3: I would say definitely. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
1: January 6th, 2021 was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next. In our work over the last 18 months, the Select Committee has recognized our obligation to do everything we can to ensure this never happens again.
2: That was Congresswoman Liz Cheney delivering blistering remarks during the January 6th meeting just as the committee formally recommended the DOJ charged former president with four criminal charges for his involvement in the Capitol insurrection. Uh, So we're glad to have this morning Donald Trump's former defense secretary, Mark Esper. I think Thank you for joining us, uh, Defense Secretary. We have a lot to talk about January 6th, and then I want to talk about what's happening at the border uh, as well. You were not in office on January 6th, but after what happened, you said that you consider Trump a threat to democracy. Do you think these criminal referrals and the findings from the committee uh, eliminate that threat?
23: Well, look, the uh, committee did a solid job in terms of uh, collecting the facts, getting testimony from witnesses, sorting through all of that and then presenting it over a period of months, culminating in yesterday. And I know we're all anxious to see the written report as well. But uh, look, I I think they made a very strong case. But as we know, as you have highlighted the the show, this is with DOJ now and has been for a while. So I think that they uh, provided more information to to the Department of Justice to do what they need to do uh, and to make the decisions they need to make going forward.
2: So the question is, considering what happened, do you see the evidence there that the president incited or aided an insurrection? Do you see that as the truth now?
23: Well, I've said that from the beginning when I first came out against the president uh, last summer, when my memoir came out, that I felt he was unfit for office and that, uh, you know, his actions, not just on that day, but in the uh, weeks leading up to it, first of all, denying the election results and then inciting people to come to D.C. on that day and then on that morning, Uh, uh, you know, inciting them once again to go to the Capitol. I think for me, I I concluded long ago that he was uh, that that he had inspired this and was trying to obstruct uh, Congress and was therefore a threat to democracy. Mm -hmm.
2: The question is, how will this play with the country, whether it's divisive? I want you to listen to the former vice president, what he said about potential charges for Trump. Here he is.
24: I would hope that they would not bring charges against the former president. I, I don't. Look, I, as I wrote in my book, I think the president's actions and words on January 6th were reckless. Um, but I don't know that it's criminal, it's criminal to Got take it. bad advice from lawyers. I hope the Justice Department understands the magnitude of the very idea of sure. indicting a former president of the United States. I think that would be terribly divisive in the country.
2: What do you think of that? Should that, that even be a consideration, sir?
23: Well, a couple things. First of all, no one is above the law in our country. I think that's a core American principle that we need to abide by. And um, and, and second, look, we have two, uh, two immediate issues. Uh, well, the second thing, of course, is there needs to be accountability always, uh, not just for the past, but for the future going forward. And it's important that the American people understand this. But I think we have two issues. The short-term issue is, and you talked about this in a previous segment, uh, would people, would Republicans rally around Donald Trump in the wake of this report, and and I haven't seen it either, which is, I think, good news. The longer term issue will be down the road, uh, probably in the middle of a Republican primary season, who knows, what will the DOJ do? Uh, Do they have the facts? uh, And can they make a case against Donald Trump that they can win in court? And then the political impact, what will that be if they don't pursue the charges, if they do pursue the charges and lose, or if they do pursue the charges and win? And those are all uh, you know, consequences they need to think
6: through.
2: Yeah. So I want to talk about what's happening um, at, at the border. And I'm not sure if you were able to hear the report moments ago, David Culver in Ciudad Juarez. Um, the Chief Justice John Roberts have temporarily halted the lifting of Title 42. That's a Trump-era policy that calls for the quick deportation of people entering uh, the country. We're looking at pictures uh, just moments ago of what's happening down on the border. Uh, the DHS is expecting a huge increase in migrant cost crossings if this is eliminated. I just wanna know what you think of what's happening at the border. And do you think these are the makings of a national security crisis?
23: Well, I'll, I've always said the border security is national security and look, the, the problem's getting worse and worse. I think uh, 2021, the highest number ever in US history of encounters at the border was 1.7 million. Uh, this year it's 2.4 million and it's going higher in 2023. We have to get this under control. I, I supported the uh, uh, Trump administration's policy, and of course, we've had troops on the border supporting uh, DHS for decades. But the bigger issue is the failure of Congress to act, to come up with a modern uh, uh, immigration policy laws to deal with this, to deal with the Dreamers, to uh, make sure we have a merit-based immigration system to secure the border, to finish uh, putting border security up. So. The bigger failure here is in Washington. I think you're hearing that from governors and states, ranging from Texas to California, and of course from lawmakers from both parties. Uh, the Biden administration needs to take this on and take it on in, in the coming Congress.
2: Well, I, listen, you didn't uh, place as much blame on the Biden administration uh, as many people do, and you did say in your in your last answer that you believe that it was a shared. Uh, that this is a, a shared issue by both Democrats and Republicans, and especially the Congress. So I think most people will agree with you. But in this political realm, people like to place blame. Uh, the former administration spent a lot of time on, you know, the, the wall and what have you. So what do you think in the final analysis, what will take care of what's happening at the border? Because it is an issue. We still have to allow people a legal immigration process uh, in this country. But we still cannot absorb as many people is expected to come over if this policy is lifted.
23: Yeah, well, let me be clear, I do blame the Biden administration. They've neglected this problem for two years now. And as I said earlier, the numbers have only grown and grown. It's been an incentive for folks from Latin America to come north into our country. And we cannot you know, handle the load. We've seen cities are overwhelmed, uh, cities on the border, cities in the northeast. And so, yeah, I, I put the blame at their feet. They need to address but with this all policy. due respect, Mr. Effer, uh, and Mr. Need-
2: Esper, four years, the, the Trump administration four. placed on wasted time with the, the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico border. There could have been more meaningful immigration policy and discussions with the Trump administration as well.
23: I, I don't disagree with you. I think, uh, again, this has been a failure for, for decades with regard to immigration policy. I worked in, in the Senate when this came up in early 2000. So. The issue between the White House and the administration the uh, uh, it goes back through many administrations. I disagree with you with regard to the Trump administration. I don't think the border wall was a waste of time. Look, border security improves, is, is an important issue. It's going to be an important pack factor in any type of immigration policy agreement going forward. So uh, I supported border security. We need border security. And uh, that's going to be the underpinnings of any eventual deal between the Congress and the White House.
2: Mr. Esper, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you. And in just a few minutes, we're going to take you back out to David Culver, who is live at the Mexico-U.S. border just moments from now. Um, there are questions this morning about an incoming Republican congressman's resume because of some parts of it. Well, they just aren't adding up what we're learning.
3: Plus, home prices are starting to come down. The promising data that home buyers, hopeful home buyers, need to know. All right, this story is just incredible. A newly elected Republican congressman from New York is under scrutiny this morning because major aspects of his resume are being called into question because of a damning report in The New York Times that says key parts of George Santos's biography that were sold to voters may largely be fiction. Santos says he graduated from Baruch College in 2010, but neither The Times nor CNN, when we later checked, could find a record of anyone with his name and birthday graduating that year His campaign website also claims that after graduating, he worked at big Wall Street firms like Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. But both companies say they have no record of his working there. That's not all. A previous version of his campaign website from April says that he, quote, founded and ran a nonprofit called Friends of Pets United from 2013 to 2018, which was able to effectively rescue 2,400 dogs, 280 cats, But according to the IRS, they were not able to find any records showing that the group held the tax-exempt status that Mr. Santos claimed. The Times report says that he did not respond to repeated requests to furnish documents that would help substantiate the claims he made while he was campaigning. His attorney told CNN that the Times was, quote, attempting to smear the congressman-elect with defamatory allegations. So joining us now with his reporting is Michael Gold from The New York Times, who broke this story along with his colleague Grace Ashford, this is it totally rocked the political world. I wonder how this started. You know, what what made you look into and kind of try to double check some of the things that, that seemingly people would not typically lie about? Sure.
25: Um, I think after the elections in November, we in New York were just curious about who some of these new congressmen were. We saw a red wave here that really didn't materialize in the rest of the country. And so we started exploring Mr. Santos, to try to figure out what made him tick. We were hoping to get a little more information about his background. There there wasn't a ton out there other than his uh, campaign biography. And so we were hoping to speak to people who knew him from his Wall Street days to try to get a sense of what kind of businessman he did. And one of the first things we did was reach out to Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, two big firms where he said he worked, to try to get dates of employment so we could start to find some of his former coworkers. And that sort of led us down this rabbit hole to start checking all the other details in his background.
3: So was that the first part? They said, you know, we don't have a record of him working here. And that's what made you question other parts of his biography?
25: Uh, we had started looking at some of the other claims in his biography. I think one of the first things we did was check the status of Friends of Pets United with, with the IRS. Um, and then just, there was some indication that that had not been registered as a 501c3, as, as Mr. Santos had claimed. Um, but I think the work stuff really took us aback and it made us sort of open our investigation a little bit more
3: it just seems like the misrepresentations we'll call them that because obviously we want him to respond to this and we'll get to what his response has been in a moment have been big and small because he did say this about the pulse shooting um, that also doesn't check out
0: i can't speak for other people's actions or behaviors i can speak for my own and I can, I condemn what happened in Colorado, just much like Pulse, uh, at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando in 2016, which I happened to at the time have people that worked for me in the club. We, my company at the time, we lost mm. four employees that were, that were at Pulse nightclub. So this is a deja vu moment for me, not a, not something that, that is really good even, to, uh, going over because it just brings back such tragic
25: memories.
3: He says his company lost four employees. What did you find when you looked into that?
25: Yeah, I want to be clear about the context of this quote. So um, Mr. Santos was on WNYC Public Radio here in New York, and he was asked about what it's like and how he's going to approach being an out gay congressman in the Republican Party when many Republican lawmakers have held views hostile to LGBT people. And he brought this up. We looked into his background and I looked at the uh, profiles of the victims of the poll shooting. We looked at old news coverage. We looked at obituaries and we could not find four employees that worked for any of the companies named in Mr. Santos's biography. Obviously, some of the details in that biography are incomplete. Um, but based on what he's told us so far, that claim didn't appear to check out.
3: And you reached out to his campaign for this. Yes. They have said that you're trying to smear him, that you know he's been in the public eye for several years. You know, Of course, in their response to you, they also quoted something they said was a Winston Churchill quote that was actually not a Winston Churchill quote. But has he actually denied that he made up parts of his biography?
25: We've uh, attempted to ask specific questions. You know, we sent them a detailed list of the things that that we've been reporting. We have not received any specific responses to any of these things. Uh, The statement uh, that his lawyer has put out is almost identical to one that we got earlier, uh, earlier this week. Nothing specific has been said about, um, the accusations that they're making about us uh, smearing him. So I, I don't know specifically what he's referring to or what his lawyer is referring to. We'd love a chance to talk in more detail.
3: Are you surprised this didn't surface sooner? You know, obviously, typically in an election, opponents do opposition research on one another. That's where often you see unflattering stories come out or accusations or basic elements like lying about what your bio is potentially.
25: You know, some of this was out there in the local press. Newsday out on Long Island had put some of this together. Um, and Mr. Sanders' opponent, uh, Robert Zimmerman, had had been saying that there were things that he didn't think checked out as well. But the campaign was so focused on other issues. You know, uh, Democrats really in New York were focusing on Mr. Sanders' ties to Trump. He said that he was at the January 6th rally, though he did not, uh, he said, go to the Capitol that day. They were focused on his stances on abortion and his stances on crime. And those were issues that were central to his campaign. I think some of these other concerns were overlooked or or marginalized because of that.
3: Yeah. Michael Gold, this is fantastic reporting. So thanks to you and your colleague, Grace. Thanks. And ahead, we are going to get reaction from Robert Zimmerman. That's who you were just hearing Michael talk about. He lost the election to George Santos, and we'll see what he says next. Also coming up,
20: he's still waiting on, on seeing what's going to happen with Title 42. said this was the part that they were going to cross, but now with all the mobilization that he's seen, he doesn't know.
3: In a moment, we'll take you back to the southern border where we were just a few moments ago. You see officials mobilizing there. David Culver is live on the ground in Ciudad Juarez. We'll go back there next. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: Now to a shocking revelation out of Uvalde, Texas, and we have learned that an inspector posing as an intruder managed to get into a school cafeteria through an unlocked door. The school superintendent says this was part of a safety audit, and it comes with the horror of the Robb Elementary School massacre still very fresh on people's minds. Senator Martin Savage joins us now. Martin, good morning to you. How did this happen?
21: Yeah, it is absolutely stunning to hear of such a security breach that would have taken place inside of a school district where just seven months ago you had 21 people, 19 students and two teachers killed by a gunman that was able to get into Robb Elementary School. So here's what we know. First, I should stress students and staff were never in any danger. This was a test. It was only a test. But what they did was they went to three different schools. They won't say what schools in the Ivaldi school system. And there was a person who was posing as an intruder, an auditor who tried the doors. Two of the schools passed, were not able to get in. But at a third school, at a cafeteria, at a loading dock area, there was a door that was supposedly locked. But when this intruder yanked on the door, he was able to get in. And when he got in, he was quickly confronted, the interim superintendent says, by cafeteria staff, workers and stuff. But if he had been armed, if this had been real, the consequences could have been disastrous again. Also at last night's school board meeting, they discussed, of course, new security doors. They talked about security cameras and they talked about a reformed police department. But still, the fact that an auditor was able to gain access in that district is just so deeply troubling at this time. Thank God it wasn't real. Don? Yeah, yeah, thank God. Troubling to say the least. Martin Savage, thank you.
3: Also, this morning, the housing market becoming more favorable for some home buyers, but the overall picture is still pretty grim, uncertain with increased demand, rising interest rates, the war in Ukraine. Let's get to CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans. What does this housing data look like if you're someone who
7: wants to buy a house, wants to sell a house, maybe you No, know, it was a couple of years of runaway price appreciation. You guys have probably all seen it. I mean, it was nuts for a couple of years. Record high home prices, double-digit price increases. Some of these um, some of these zip codes, you know, like in the like Seattle and um, San Francisco and uh, Phoenix, you said 10, 20, 30 percent price increases. That has stopped. And that's what we're talking about here. That has stopped, and there's a reckoning here where higher mortgage rates mean it's more expensive to get in and buy a home, and so home prices have really cooled off here. They're still rising, but more slowly, home sales have fallen, and next year – Great uncertainty about what happens with home prices, but home prices have sort of stalled here. And the National Association of Realtors says next year, probably half the zip codes, you'll see a little bit of a price increase in home prices. Half the zip codes, a little bit of a decrease. But watch those big red hot markets I was talking about um, for the past couple of years. You could see bigger price increases there.
2: Because there are people out there who still think I can get all of this money for to sell my, you know, by selling my home. It's not happening anymore. Where
7: are you going to move, too? Because home prices are not moving down very, very quickly either. So they're still historically high, many of these home prices. What about people who flip houses? Because that's a big thing for a lot of people. They pay all cash. Is that an issue for them? So this is all slowed. The flippers have slowed. The uh, corporate investment in the housing market has slowed. Um, The second home market has slowed. Everything has slowed down here as we're trying to get a reckoning about where home where. Where mortgage is, rates is are going to good though for well it needs to cool off. To I okay mean good. and you know I'm sure there are some people who say this is this is terrible what's happening in the housing market for them. But this was unsustainable. Three percent mortgage rates and 20 yeah. percent annual price increases. That Crazy. is just unsustainable. We just don't know what's going to happen next. Is there going to be a big leg down as it corrects, or is it going to be more gradual? No one knows for sure.
2: Thank yeah. you. You're good to see you so we are live along the u.s mexico border you've got to see this what's happening this morning live pictures for you there where officials appear to be blocking off one border crossing entrance good morning everyone it is the top of the hour and it is Tuesday, you don't see Poppy Harlow because Poppy is off today.
3: Much deserved.
2: Yeah. And we got to catch you up, though, very quickly on the five big stories CNN uh, is following this morning. Overnight, lawmakers unveiled a sweeping full year funding bill to avert a government shutdown. The $1.7 trillion spending bill would fund critical government operations for the 2023 fiscal year. It also includes $44.9 billion in emergency assistance to Ukraine and NATO allies. The bill also includes a measure to ban TikTok from federal devices.
3: Also this morning, the January 6th committee has now recommended criminal charges against former President Trump. The committee using its final public meeting yesterday to summarize its 17-month investigation with a simple closing argument. All roads lead to Trump. The referral does not require the Justice Department to act, and there are big questions on whether or not they will.
2: A Maricopa County Superior Court judge ruled that Arizona Republican Carrie Lake, who lost last month's gubernatorial race, will be allowed to head to trial in her election lawsuit. Lake lost to Democrat Katie Hobbs by about 17,000 votes. Lake claims that intentional misconduct caused her loss. The judge ruled that most of the claims that Lake made, 8 out of 10, would immediately be dismissed.
3: And the timing couldn't be worse, especially for those who are traveling for the holidays. Millions of Americans waking up to winter weather and wind chill alerts as an Arctic blast will bring drastically cold temperatures across much of the country in the coming days. Right now, so far, more than 25 million people are under wind chill alerts across much of the central and northwestern United States.
2: And a hero's welcome in Argentina. Crowds of Argentine fans cheer their national team as they returned home as World Cup champions. Today has been declared a national holiday in Argentina to celebrate the win. But first, this. Thousands of migrants are living in limbo along the southern border after Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts blocked the order to lift Title 42, the border restrictions there. And this morning, we're witnessing some mobilization from officials, which we just learned is part of the Texas Governor Greg Abbott's border security mission. So we're going to get straight now to David Culver. He's in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico this morning. David, good morning to you. You have been witnessing what's happening there at the border, uh, what uh, Greg Abbott's um, border team is doing there, and also speaking to some of the migrants. What are you learning? What are you seeing?
20: And Don, in the past hour when we were speaking with you as this was unfolding, it seemed a bit unclear to us who exactly these uh, law enforcement members were. As you point out, it does seem that these are now part of the State National Guard. And we know that in the past 24 hours, the Texas State National Guard put on uh, about 400 uh, members on alert and on standby to be mission ready. Well, it seems like now they are mobilizing and quite actively. Let me walk you a little bit just to show you what has taken place here. You can see what was really a staging ground. and, And this is what you should understand about that side of the Rio Grande is that this, of course, the US side is uh, where a lot of the migrants were staging uh, once they had crossed over the Rio Grande. That's an illegal crossing, but then they would wait there and they would line up and where you see all these Humvees and now uh, what our state trooper from Texas uh, vehicles flashing there, the lights there, that uh, was covered with migrants waiting this morning around 4.30. They had campfires lit and then suddenly This mobilization moved in, those fires were extinguished, and they were moving, uh, those migrants had to be processed. Some, though, came back over to this side, the Mexican side, and we caught up with one of them. Take a listen. What do you think about all of this with the military? Ellos sabrán lo que están haciendo, porque de verdad nosotros todos nos de aquel lado, entonces nos dieron que nos pasáramos de este lado, que mañana, según este, iban a dejar entrar a otras las personas por aquel lado, no sé por dónde, pero fue lo que dijeron. Pero vas a cruzar mañana, ¿tú crees? ¿Por no, esta parte? No, no sé, no, yo voy a esperar hasta, hasta que llegue
6: la decisión con el artículo 42.
20: Uh, he's still waiting on, on seeing what's going to happen with Title 42. Said this was the part that they were going to cross, but now, with all the mobilization that he's seen, he doesn't know. When And that is a huge part of this, is all this confusion. So that migrant we had spoken with from Venezuela, he, like many others, had that deadline of the 21st of December, thinking that that's when Title 42 was going to be lifted. Don, as you pointed out, what came yesterday from the chief justice changed all of that. It is still in effect. And now you've got added law enforcement behind me here at the border. So a lot of these folks who are working on that 21st timeline, they're thinking perhaps they still try to cross. Maybe they, they hold off for a bit. They're waiting for. What could be a new date and deadline for them to fixate on to then determine their next steps here but you have this state of confusion and really limbo that a lot of these folks are finding themselves in and now they're looking across and seeing the space that they used to easily walk across onto i mean it was so simple for them they'd step over stones and they'd be there some of them going back and forth to help others well now it looks to be completely shuttered and that seems to be as we pointed out don a mobilization from texas David Culver, live along the U.S.-Mexico border.
2: David, thank you.
3: This morning, Republicans on Capitol Hill are divided. After the January 6th committee historic referral of former President Trump to the Justice Department for criminal prosecution, Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell didn't really mince words on that. He said the entire nation knows who is responsible for what happened that day. He said beyond that, he doesn't have anything else to add.
20: It was set up as political theater. It's still political theater. Investigations ought to be done by law enforcement, not by some political group out of the house.
16: We've done 105 town halls, and this January 6th commission never came up. I don't think anybody's paying attention to it. I think it's time to move on. The people that were responsible for January
26: 6th were the people that illegally came into the building. Um, People that stormed over barriers and broke through windows and doors and illegally trespassed in the United States Capitol. I I think it's a cop-out to blame somebody other than the actual perpetrators of crime.
3: Joining us now is one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump for inciting the January 6th insurrection, Congressman Fred Upton, who we should note is retiring after 18 terms in Congress. And Congressman, I want to get to your time in Congress and what you're looking back on in a moment. But first on what happened yesterday on Capitol Hill, what you just heard from your fellow Republicans there. Do you believe that the committee has shown that it is Trump who's responsible for what happened that day?
27: Well, first of all, I look forward to reading their full report when it comes out tomorrow. Uh, but I think they, they've done a, a pretty good job. You know, you can't just sweep this under the rug. Uh, I once chaired the Oversight uh, Subcommittee, and our role was to investigate fraud and abuse and then go back and correct it. So that's, in essence, what they did. Uh, you'll remember that former President Trump actually opposed a bipartisan commission, one that was equal with Republicans and Democrats, subpoena power staff, all of that. They are supposed to get their work done a year ago, by the end of 2021, uh, he opposed that. Uh, and this was the uh, and, and it, it passed despite it passing the house, the Senate didn't get the 60 votes to get it done. And so we ended up with the with the current uh, commission that's there now, which is a little bit slanted, but they were unanimous yesterday, a little bit slanted in terms of Democrats to Republicans. but they but they were unanimous. And they have now submitted their recommendations to the Justice Department. So that's step number. But step number two, later this week, as part of the omnibus appropriation bill, we're going to have electoral reform. So this is fixing the problem. This is to make sure that not just one member of the House and Senate together can object to a state's certified electoral count. It's got to be at least 20 percent of the body, 20 20 senators, you know, a good number of House members as well. And that will then, uh, would then trigger uh, what the, the insurrectionists tried to really do on January 6th to block this from happening. But the, commi- the commission uh, that's going to issue their report did their job. We'll see what the Justice Department does. Uh, they've got, you know, what, a thousand different interviews, transcripts, yeah. all that. Uh, they'll, they'll make that decision.
3: Do you think the findings, when it comes to a political perspective, could complicate Trump's run in 2024?
27: Well, for sure it could, although, you know, I'm not a lawyer. And, of course, if he is, if if charges were made and particularly the insurrectionist charge stuck and he was viewed as guilty, I would imagine he would he would uh, uh, um, ask that it be reviewed again. uh, And that's going to take time. And probably beyond the November 24th, he would appeal and and take it beyond the uh, 24th election. So I'm not sure what type of impact it would have on him. But, you know, he has a strong following among the base. I mean, even this week you see polls, 30 percent of the Republican voters want him to run again. And if you get other folks, other candidates in, whether it be DeSantis or, uh, um, you know, Pompeo and and others— that 30 percent all of a sudden looks pretty good.
3: I want to switch because you did see also the health ethics referrals yesterday for several members of Congress who defied subpoenas from the January 6th committee. One of those is Kevin McCarthy. But you have said you do believe that Kevin McCarthy should be House Speaker. He hasn't gotten any closer to getting the votes yet. We are getting closer to January 3rd when the new Congress begins. Are you confident he's going to get there?
27: Well, I don't know what his insight—and I'm not going to be part of the next Congress, so I'm not a, a voter on that. Uh, he is still votes short. He's got two weeks, right, uh, to make it. He needs 218 votes. Uh, in our secret ballot uh, that we had of the new members, he got, I think, 188. So he's, he's uh, well short of that. And, of course, we've got five Republicans that are on record of saying, no way are they going to support for Kevin uh, somehow he has to whittle that number down to get to 218. I suspect that we're going to have multiple ballots, uh, and it may take multiple days before a successor to Nancy Pelosi is, is named. But uh, I'm not sure what his vote count is, but somehow he's he's got to get 218, and that means he's going to have to break or uh, break loose uh, some of those five that are on record saying No way, Kevin.
3: Well, and some of the demands that he's facing is that they want to bring back that motion to vacate, where there can be that one vote to potentially oust a sitting speaker. Do you think that's something he should agree to in order to get the votes here?
27: No way. No way. I'll tell you. So what this is, it would be a rule that any single member, Republican or Democrat, could say enough. I'm going to have a vote, uh, demand a vote uh, to vacate the speakership. And then you'd have debate. You could actually, you could do that every day. You could tie the house up in knots for sure. If there's one thing you didn't like that he did or a committee chair didn't do, I mean, it is uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi. So the Problem Solvers Caucus, of which I'm a a member, uh, I'm actually a a vice chair of it, we actually helped change the rule in this current Congress uh, to to change that vote to, to vacate the chair being one person. Uh, and uh, it was a welcome change. It's obviously what did take down Speaker Ryan and Speaker Boehner. Uh, just that threat of to vacate the chair, they in essence said enough already. Uh, but we, no speaker should ever agree to this uh, to go back to the rule where it would just take one member to disrupt the proceedings of the House.
3: I do want to ask you before you go: You're retiring, and you have spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill. You have seen very different iterations of Congress. I wonder as you're leaving and you see what it looks like on Capitol Hill right now, what you want your legacy as a legislator to be remembered
27: as. Well, my legacy, you know, my grandfather passed away uh, the year that I was elected and uh, I went through his uh, belongings and I, on his desk, he had a little brass plaque and said, just do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took that, that little uh, 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 saying and I put it on my desk. Uh, all my years. Uh, my legacy as chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, we actually passed 21st Century Cures, which Mitch McConnell then said was the most important piece of legislation enacted in that Congress. And what it did was expedite the approval of drugs and devices uh, by the FDA. It was coupled with $45 billion more in health research money. And fast forward four years later, it was the last bill that Obama signed into law. That was what allowed Pfizer and Moderna and J&J to actually produce, manufacture the COVID vaccine months before it got the FDA approval and be able to send it out and distribute it across the country day one, six to eight months earlier than what it otherwise would have been, saving hundreds of thousands of lives. It was bipartisan, took a lot of effort. Vice President Biden was was a key component of that. But at the end of the day, if you look back at my years in Congress, that's what I'm most proud of.
3: Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Congressman Fred Upton, as you are retiring. And thanks for joining us this morning to talk about this and your legacy.
27: I wore my Michigan Wolverine just for my Bama friends.
3: Oh, come on. <laughs> don't do that to me. We were having a nice moment. <laughs>
27: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: All right. Well, I'm going to have to say roll tide now. Thank you so much.
2: Let's get you out of this. We're going to bring you now in now, CNN senior political analyst and anchor, John Avalon, also with us, Steve Bannon's attorney, David Schoen. Uh, he was also former President Trump's defense lawyer during the second impeachment trial. We're so glad to have all of you on. David, don't worry. We're going to get to you, but I want to get to John, who's in the studio now. John, um, give us your time takeaways from yesterday. What
16: do you think? Look, th- this is history in the present tense. You can't overestimate the significance of a bipartisan panel um, recommending the former president for criminal prosecution. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, this is a recommendation, but look at the charges they're bringing forward, particularly to aid and incite an insurrection, as well as conspiracy to defraud the United States. These are charges that are deep with history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you know the weight of history is on us. And I think Trump's alleged crimes against the Constitution, against our democracy, rise to that level. David, I'm I'm interested in in what
2: you have to say, because you've been saying that that you're disappointed in how this committee handled what's going on. Why is it handled? You said this important endeavor. That's a quote from you. What would you have liked to see be done differently?
28: Well, I I suppose I I respectfully disagree with the earlier statement that This was in any way a bipartisan committee. What I'm disappointed by was the composition of the committee from the start. If you believe, as I do, that the events of January 6th were monumentally significant, then the American people deserved a true investigation by an independent body. Now, you might say Mr. McCarthy messed up by not participating in it. He didn't want to legitimize it. And that's a fair criticism. But of all of the members of Congress to choose Chairman Thompson as the head of the so-called investigative committee when he had a lawsuit personally against President Trump alleging that President Trump was personally uh, responsible for the events and for his, Chairman Thompson's, personal injuries, to pick that person as the head of the investigative committee just sends a terrible message. The process is important. And you have but isn't that something Rask, that could be Rask litigated? Is is, isn't
2: that something? Excuse me. I'm sorry. Isn't there uh, something sorry, that, sorry, something that, that should be litigated in court because there were people who were injured, uh, who suffered uh, not only mental, but not only physical, but mental injuries uh, as well as part of what happened on January sixth. Uh, and, and as you said, you correctly pointed out, McCarthy did have the opportunity to place sensible Republicans, rational Republicans not disruptors on the committee, and chose not to. Isn't that McCarthy's own fault? Isn't that Republicans' own fault? I think he
28: made a mistake with that. However, he didn't. He felt he was legitimizing the process, I think. By doing that, it was unprecedented, as I think even Speaker Pelosi acknowledged... You don't think it was a legitimate process? I, I think it was an illegitimate process. You also, by the way, there are additional conflicts. I'm talking about the process. You have Mr. Raskin, Mr. Schiff on there who've written books about the event laying blame. They have a personal interest in ensuring that the committee comes out with the right result. All I'm saying is the American public deserve to have members of the committee Mm. who weren't uh, marked by conflicts having a full and fair investigation of all aspects of this. That's why I'm disappointed.
16: Respectfully though, I'd suggest the problem isn't process right? The problem is not process. The problem is January 6th and the actions that led up to it. And, and of course, you've got Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on the committee. And what was striking yesterday, I think, in the videos that were shown in the testimony, is that the vast majority was from Republicans, Trump loyalists, who recognize what occurred and will caution the president against pursuing this path, but he did anyway.
28: Of course, many rational people feel that the course of action wasn't appropriate. What I object to is the polit- partisan political criminalization uh, weaponization of the criminal process. This isn't the way to go through criminal charges uh, at, or a, a non-bipartisan, a partisan committee. That's my problem with it. I think the American people are entitled to the full story and the true story, but half of the public can't accept it because of the those who are delivering the message.
3: Well, David, I think we have to point out here, the, of course, your client, Steve Bannon, was found guilty on contempt of Congress charges for defying a subpoena from this committee.
28: Right. Uh, absolutely fair to point that out. And you should also point out, then, that the judge who ruled against us on every legal issue has now issued an order saying that he finds it likely that the result will be reversed and lead to a new trial. Not possible, likely.
3: Do you think that Steve Bannon's contempt of Congress charge is going to be reversed, ultimately?
28: I think it certainly should be. No one ever knows what a court of appeals is going to do. But I think for every American out there, it should be. The definition of willfully in that case was absolutely wrong. The judge has acknowledged that on about six occasions, that he thinks he was wrong in construing the law, but that his hands were tied.
3: Well, well, it was a federal jury that found him guilty, we should know. Just
2: real quick on something. I just want to follow up on something that you said. Now, John, uh, um, you said that the people that you think that many people won't accept the result because of who the messenger is but what if all why does a messenger matter so much than the actual evidence and the act
28: well because evidence can be skewed by the messenger in other words they might only seek out not when it comes to the department of justice
2: line. come on david not when Pardon? it comes to not Pardon? when it comes to the the department of justice it's not the the evidence matters over who the messenger is. Come on, let's be, let's be real here.
28: Oh, I think that, I, I hope that's right. But remember, the Department of Justice also has been politicized in every administration, quite frankly. And now you have as the number two person, Lisa Monaco, who Not like an the former administration. Andrew administration. That's not true.
2: That's not true. Pardon? That's not Pardon? true. The Department of Justice has that's not been not politicized this, the way this, it has this, in the former, with the former administration, especially when, when that's you- That's your view. I expect that. I expect your view. No, that's not view. just my view. Those are the facts. The evidence points, all evidence points in that direction. Uh, again, that's your view. That's not that's my mistaken. view. It's a fact. Okay. David, thank you. I appreciate it. John Avalon, thank you so much. Straight ahead, January 6th committee member of Congressman Adam Schiff is going to join us live. What he expects should happen. That's next.
3: Also this morning, a 6.4 magnitude earthquake that we told you about earlier. It has shaken Humboldt County, California. CNN's Veronica Miracle is there live in San Francisco. Veronica, I know we were talking earlier about thousands without power because of this. What are you learning so far?
5: Yeah, we understand that as of now, about 70% of Humboldt County remains without power. That's about 70,000 people in the dark as officials assess the damage. Um, aftershocks continue from this very large earthquake in the coastal, near the coastal community of Ferndale, but officials are saying that there is no tsunami threat at this time. There are reports, however, of damage to roadways, debris on roadways, cracks on a large bridge that connects the community, Fern Bridge, and the CHP right now shutting down that bridge out of an abundance of caution as they assess the damage. We're also hearing reports of damage to homes in the area in terms of uh, what's happening inside. We're seeing videos of shelves knocked down, glassware, china broken, as people wake up and assess the damage. Again, 70 percent of those people in that uh, county without power this morning. And the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office asking people not to call 911 unless it's an
3: immediate emergency. Caitlin? That's good information there. Veronica, thank you. All right, Title 42 is remaining in place for now, but it's very much still in limbo. Officials are still bracing for a surge. We'll get reaction to the decision when Judge Richard Cortez of Hidalgo County, Texas, joins us next for his perspective. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Despite the Supreme Court's temporary freeze that it's going to keep Title 42 in place for now, but the White House and officials at the southern border say they're pushing ahead with efforts to plan for if it's lifted, anticipating that that will happen soon. Border towns have been bracing for days for a surge of migrants because this pandemic-era public health authority that was put in place by the Trump administration allowed border officials to quickly expel migrants. It was set to expire. It raised a lot of concerns. So joining us now is Judge Richard Cortez of Hidalgo County, Texas. It sits on the U.S.-Mexico border. He is a Democrat who has said that ending Title 42, he fears, would be a nightmare. So I just want to thank you for, for joining us this morning, Judge. And, and what's your response to what you saw from the Supreme Court? Because the problem here, and I assume your view, is that it's just temporary and not a permanent
25: fix.
6: Yes, well, quite, quite honestly, we're relieved that, that Title 42 has been extended. Uh, we were preparing for the worst. Uh, we made all the preparations we possibly could to be able to accommodate um, a large inflow of, of people. You know, we were pretty almost already to capacity in some of our locations that, that, that we uh, hold some of these immigrants Uh, So thank goodness it gives a little more time to adjust and to hopefully reflect on the successes and the failures that this border policy has had. So I think most of us are very pleased with the extension. So I
2: want to ask you about the Biden administration. You have been urging this administration, especially the president, to come to the border to see what is happening. Uh, Have you heard anything from the president? And I'm sure you would like this to be permanent because this is this is an, an administrative and an, an, a decision by the administration. This is a decision by the Chief Justice.
6: Well, you know, thank you for asking me that question. I really appreciate you know the question that you asked me. Here again, you know every time we talk about border issues, we talk about what's wrong, what the problem is, but we very rarely talk about the solutions. The solution really is that the United States of America trying to solve this border problem, with an enforcement only policy and it hasn't worked. Uh, the blame really to me is in Congress. Congress has the right to look into a comprehensive immigration report and put laws that that are that are proper in today's today's environment. All the economists that I've spoken to, articles that I've read, America needs immigrants to maintain and grow our economy. So if that is true, and we all want immigrants to come here legally then the only way we can make that happen is for Congress to change the laws. So that, to me, is my best contribution uh, going forward because continuing to put this many resources and and still having the problems that we had. We had over 73,000 illegal immigrants come to our area. They're coming in from multiple, multiple, multiple places. What are the facts? We know that those asylum seekers that are coming in Many of them have not been adjudicated yet, and those that have been adjudicated, only 10 percent qualify. So what is that telling you? Telling you that our system uh, isn't working.
3: Hmm. Doesn't seem likely that Congress will act anytime soon, though.
2: Judge, thank you. We appreciate it. Go on, finish your thought.
6: No, I'm hoping that the new uh, congressman, when it uh, forms next year, hopefully will take a look at this thing, because we can't just keep putting more resources into a problem because it hasn't worked. Yeah. Thank you
2: for you. Judge, for thank you. Allow me to say this. We appreciate you joining us once again. And up next, we're going to be joined by a member of the January 6th Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff. As you well know, it's a historic day on Capitol Hill. The January 6th committee referring former President Trump to the Justice Department on four criminal charges for obstructing an official proceeding, conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to make false conspiracy—I should say—to make false statements, assisting or aiding an insurrection. This is the first time that Congress has referred a former president for criminal prosecution. So let's discuss all of this. Joining me now, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, a Californian and a member of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Congressman, we appreciate you joining us uh, today. Thank you so much. Why was it important for those criminal referrals? Because Republicans are framing this as legally not binding and saying that it's only ceremonial,
29: basically downplaying the work of the committee. Well, Republicans have been downplaying the work of the committee since it began, but happily, the American people have been watching Uh, And it was important uh, in a number of respects. It was important because this was an attack on the Congress as well as on our democracy. Uh, Normally, the Congress would refer uh, potential crimes of uh, failing to appear before Congress after being subpoenaed or lying to Congress. Here, this was an attack uh, on the Congress. And we had a duty, I think, to set out the evidence that we had gathered about the threat to our democracy, how uh, we are not out of the woods yet, and what do we need to do to protect ourselves going forward? But also, it was important, I think, uh, as a matter of accountability for the Justice Department. Uh, the American people now understand that in the view of our committee, the former, former president committed uh, serious crimes uh, that the Justice Department needs to investigate. Uh, and that, that uh, I think, will hopefully... Uh, hold the Justice Department to the standard it set out at the beginning of the investigation, that it would follow the evidence wherever it leads. It would have only one standard of the rule of law. It would apply it equally, whether you were a former president or an ordinary citizen. Uh, So it's an important uh, element of accountability.
3: Can I ask you, Congressman, why did the committee not recommend a seditious conspiracy charge?
29: Uh, We indicated that uh, the Justice Department, with the evidence it has, which may be uh, additional to what we have gathered, should consider uh, seditious conspiracy. But we went through other offenses that we felt uh, the evidence in our possession uh, made all of the links uh, in terms of causation, in terms of the elements of each uh, part of the offense. Uh, So we put the strongest uh, evidence and the strongest uh, criminal offenses forward first. But we recognize there are other offenses the Justice Department needs to, to consider, including that one. Um, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list by any means. And indeed, we also point out that there are other individuals that may have come to the Justice Department's attention and ours, uh, where we didn't want to itemize uh, necessarily what the evidence was as to uh, individuals. So you're saying it wasn't meant to be an exhaustive list. So this is I'm wondering, then, if you think that these
2: are your four. Um, You know, most this, the best evidence to support these four charges. Let me just read them off again. Obstructing an official proceeding, defrauding the United States, making false statements, assisting or aiding uh, an insurrection. Do you think that that is the best? And that's why those were put out there. And of those four, do
29: you think that any are better than the others? Uh, yes, we we identified these four because we, uh, in looking at the evidence in our possession, thought that there was sufficient evidence as to each element of each of those crimes, uh, and that they were serious enough that we wanted to uh, refer the matter to the Justice Department. Uh, but we we want to be sure that people understand that there are other offenses too. This is not meant to be exhaustive. Uh, in terms of you know which are the strongest uh, of those referrals, you know there are, and I say this as a former prosecutor. There are times when the most serious offense uh, is not necessarily the easiest offense to prove. Uh, and, uh, and so we wanted to list all four of these. Uh, it may be the Justice Department uh, determines that, okay, the, the evidence is strongest as to this statute or that statute. Uh, I think the most serious of the crimes we allege is the crime of insurrection itself. Uh, and there, I think the evidence is abundant that the president assembled this mob, Uh, that after all else failed uh, and he's told that this uh, people in the crowd won't go through metal detectors because they're armed. He nonetheless sends this armed and dangerous mob to the Capitol. uh, And while they're uh, attacking police officers, interfering in the joint session, uh, he watches from the comfort of the White House dining room and refuses to lift a finger to do anything to stop it and then tells the country how much he loves these people and is even now talking about pardons if he gets the chance.
3: Congressman, One person your committee didn't speak to was Vice President Pence. He was weighing in on what he thinks the Justice Department should do. This is what he said.
24: I would hope that they would not bring charges against the former president. I I don't look I, as I wrote in my book, I think the president's actions and words on January 6th were reckless. but I don't know that it's criminal, it's criminal to Got take it. bad advice from lawyers. I hope the Justice Department understands the magnitude of the very idea of sure. indicting a former president of the United States. I think that would be terribly divisive in the country.
3: Obviously, it was not just bad advice from lawyers. But I wonder if Pence had come before you, what would you have asked him?
29: Well, uh, first of all, uh, I think you have to view everything Mike Pence says through the prism of what he thinks uh, best positions him to run for president. Uh, and that's, I think, a really disappointing cop-out uh, that you just played. Uh, it wasn't, as you say, just a matter of getting bad advice from lawyers. Uh, he was getting good advice from his own top Justice Department people uh, that there was no basis to these fraud claims. And what was his answer? Well, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest of me and the Republican congressmen. That is, he told his own Justice Department to lie about it, and he would take it from there. Uh, so uh, in terms of what we would have liked to have heard from the vice president, he was on the phone in meetings with the president talking about the joint session. Uh, the vice president understood he had no constitutional authority to simply disregard legitimate electors and, uh, and instead uh, declare somehow uh, Donald Trump the winner. Uh, those conversations were really important for the American people to know, Uh, And I I think that, again, the vice president uh, did a a grave disservice uh, with his refusal to testify because he certainly could have decided to testify. Uh, It's another matter about whether we could have forced him. But there was nothing prohibiting him as other presidents, indeed, have come before Congress after their terms were over.
3: We'll see if he speaks to the Justice Department. Congressman Adam Schiff, though, thank you for joining us this morning to break down the findings of your committee from yesterday.
2: Thank you, Congressman. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. Get some needed rest. You too. Thank you.
3: All right. An incoming Republican congressman is under scrutiny this morning after a report in the New York Times that he misrepresented his background to voters. Don's going to talk to his Democrat opponent that he beat next.
2: Right, you got to pay attention to this next story. Incoming Congressman George Santos's win in New York was key in Republicans taking back control of the House. But now the New York Times has uncovered parts of his resume, like his education, his employment history and charity work, that didn't really add up. They don't really add up. A CNN review of the claims confirms it. So George Santos claimed that he received degrees from Baruch College and New York University, but both schools say that they were unable to find records of anyone with his name ever attending. Also, according to his website, he worked at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, yet both firms tell CNN that they have no record of his employment. Andy claims to have founded a nonprofit animal rescue operation, but the group does not exist in the IRS's searchable database or among registered charities in New York or Florida. An attorney for Santos is calling this a smear. So joining us now, Robert Zimmerman, who was defeated by Santos. In the midterms. We're so glad that you are here. Thank you. There's a lot to be with you, Don. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. A lot of questions about Santos. okay? but there is a question that everyone has for your campaign. Did your team not know about this? That his bio didn't check out?
26: Why weren't you, you know, raising concerns to the high heavens about this? Of course we knew about it, Don. And most people aren't even asking the question because we spoke to many reporters on these issues and raised these concerns to the high heavens. And that's, and that's well established. In fact, the DCCC, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, put out an 87-page document about him, and local media, to their credit, did cover it. The, Isle, the Leader, which is a North Shore weekly publication, they quoted Republicans calling him George Scamptos. Let's put, and let's new, put that Newsday, up. And Newsday also extensively addressed this, these issues as well locally. Let's put that up. Uh, You
2: said the North Shore leader had reporting and questions about his finances. The Democratic Party put out its opposition research saying that he was the epitome of a shady Wall Street bro bro. So did you think voters did not care or did you not hammer it home enough? Did the media not follow up?
26: What is it? Look, the reality is, of course, voters cared, but getting it in front of the voters was the real challenge here. We needed the media to follow up more extensively. I thought The Times' Times work was excellent, really brilliant investigative journalism. But in fact, we needed much more attention around these issues and much more investigative work. We had a 10-week general election campaign. We raised all the issues and more that you're referring to. And the real issue right now here is... The real. And while everyone wants to engage, and I know local politicians love to finger point, the only finger pointing should be at George Santos. Mm-hmm. This man is a fraudster. He's a, the allegations of fraud and corruption are well documented in the Times story, and there has to be a House Ethics Committee investigation into him, and there has to also be a Department of Justice investigation. I mean, he, in his own records, acknowledges, loaning his own camp documents, he loaned his own campaign $700,000. He didn't have a job. Where did the money come from? And that's the real issue now to follow up. Where did his money come from? How did he bankroll his campaign? And other issues about what his claims of his personal wealth are.
2: But it's also up to the Republican Party um, to, you know, to step in and say, listen, we need to we have some concerns about this. We need to check it out. I I don't know at this point if the
26: Republican Party will will do that. And it's interesting. Go on. It's interesting. Joe Cairo, who's the Nassau County Republican chairman, issued a statement calling upon George Santos to answer questions. I have, of course, uh, the, fact I've, the fact that he's refused to answer any questions just documents, in my view, how much he's trying to cover up and the fraud he's committed. So what would you like to see done? Because he has responded to this. He's only saying
2: that it is, you know, no doubt that The New York Times, of course, he has enemies at The New York Times, but not responding
26: specifically to the allegations in this report. Of course he didn't, because he can't answer the issues, the allegations of the fraud he committed, lying about his background, lying about the homes he claims he owns, lying about his employment practices. But, you know, the Daily Beast has documented his former company that he worked for was shut down in a Ponzi scheme. They've also documented that he received funding for his campaign from relatives of Russian oligarchs.
2: That does not name him in that scheme, though, but the former company, you're right, was shut down. That's right. So there's a
26: lot there's a lot that's been carried by local media. But the media now has to hopefully keep the focus on the fact that that, in fact, the financial corruption that surrounds him and the fraud he's committed on my congressional district where I grew up, where I live. That is the real travesty here. And I hope Congress will not drop the ball and will make sure there's a full investigation. Do you think it'll get to a point where there's a special election? Because that, is, that would be the final outcome. If he did,
2: if he did indeed do uh, commit these things and these lies, there could be a special election here that the governor would have to call. Do you think it will we'll get to you, Before point? you
26: get to a special election, first, he either has to resign because of the pressure of the investigations and the exposures of the corruption and fraud that clearly is, that defined him as George Scamptos in the media. Or it's or he ha, or for that matter, Congress removes them. There won't be a special election to either step is taken. All
11: right.
2: Thank you, Robert Zimmerman. Good to be with appreciate you, you, John. What, what a turn of events. It sure is. Thank you very much. Thank you.
26: Thanks for the opportunity.
2: So this morning's number is thirty. Harry Inton explains. That's next. It's
3: my age. <laughs> oh, she
2: was on Yeah, that's real. <laughs>
3: All right, right now parents are feeling pressure to get their kids the hottest new toys. Not just parents, cool aunts like me too. A lot of these toys are often hard to come by. CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton has been noticing a trend with the most popular toys. What is it?
10: All right, so let's take a look. The this morning's number is it's $30. That's the average price of the best-selling holiday toy from 2014 to 2021, inflation adjusted with the lowest being $6 and the highest being $72. What is the interesting trend you talk about, Caitlin? Take a look here at the average price of the best-selling holiday toy, inflation-adjusted. It's just been $30. Look how much cheaper that is than from past years. My goodness gracious. It's far cheaper than the cheapest on this list, which was $85. So the, so the best-selling holiday toy has been getting cheaper.
3: And are people spending less on these toys? Uh, what's the difference in this?
10: What's going on here? Okay, first off, Why are these toy prices becoming cheaper? One, the use of overseas labor has led to the average price of toys to drop 77% since the mid 90s. Also, of note, the most popular toys the last few years have been actual toys, not computers or video games since
2: 2014. I was just like, my nieces, like, said, you got to go, you got to find this Xbox, you got to get, what was it I last year, the, the, this Xbox thing? It was actually
10: an octopus pu- pushy toy last year was the most popular Oh, my toy. gosh. I mean, you're not factoring in the thing No, that I, I, I am looking wants. at the actual hard numbers, All just right. not using anecdotal evidence. Now, if you're wondering whether or not this year the toys, the will, will most expensive holiday toy, the most popular, excuse me, will be cheaper than in past years, well, keep a look here. Will you spend less on holiday gifts this year because of recent economic conditions? Adults with a child under 18 say yes. 76% say yes, they will, so I wouldn't be shocked if it's cheaper. Okay,
3: but what what have been the best-selling toys ever? Because this, I'm going to love, I know.
10: So, okay, what was the price of the best-selling holiday toy since 1982? The most expensive... Was the iPad in 2010 at $678, oh, was, least expensive, the Troll Dolls back in 1988,
2: and the 5 best, the best and least expensive, the boxes, the toys come in for the little ones. They love that
10: more. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> my nephews are
3: part of that. Cats, too. Thanks, Harry. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. And CNN Newsroom starts right after this break. He didn't get the Xbox. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.